Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Today on the podcast, we get down in the trenches and soar to the stars with the contributors of the year's best military science fiction and space opera, and we begin our serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All that, right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. Attentive listeners will have picked up by now that I am not Bain editor Tony Daniel. I'm David F. Shirod, and if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you might recognize my voice. Tony's away from the Bain studios this week, but we'll be back to the program soon. In the meantime, it's a pleasure for me to be here with you. Today we're talking to five, count them, five contributors to the new anthology, out now and available from booksellers everywhere, the year's best military science fiction and space opera. We've got Matthew Johnson, Derek Koonskin, David D. Levine, Linda Nagata, and Michael Z. Williamson on deck. And as a bonus, we're throwing in the editor of Year's Best Military Science Fiction and Space Opera. That would be me, David Afshirod. After that, we have the first entry in our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. But first, here's the news. June trade paperbacks, we've got them. Hot off the presses and for your reading pleasure. First up, Multiverse, exploring the worlds of Paul Anderson. Anderson was one of the seminal figures of 20th century science fiction. Equally at home in fantasy and SF, Anderson left a legacy that continues undiminished to this day. Multiverse, which was edited by Greg Baer and Gardner Dozois, pays tribute to this Sefwa grandmaster. It's chock full of good stuff, essays and remembrances, as well as all new fiction set in Anderson's worlds. Contributors include Robert Silverberg, Nancy Cress, Eric Flint, Terry Brooks, Jerry Purnell, and many more. That's Multiverse, exploring the worlds of Paul Anderson. Also out is the subject of today's podcast interview, The Year's Best Military Science Fiction and Space Opera. That one, as I said, was edited by me, your host, David Afshirod. And uh, it's a good one, if I do say so myself. Of course, the credit for that goes to the contributors, some of whom will be joining us in just a moment. 
The book also includes short stories by Holly Black, Brad Torgerson, Seth Dickinson, and many more. It also features an introduction by master of military science fiction, David Drake. The book collects the most thrilling, pulse-pounding, edge-of-your-seat stories of the year. Incidentally, I'd like to mention that you can get in on the action by voting for your favorite story in the anthology. Maine is proud to announce the first annual Year's Best Military Science Fiction and Space Opera Award. There's a website in the book where you can go to vote on the story from the anthology that you thought was the year's best. The winner of that Proctor voting will get a $500 prize and a cool plaque, which will be handed out at Dragon Con later this year. So, reward your favorite story or author by voting. And now let's talk to some of the contributors to Year's Best. Here is Matthew Johnson, Derek Kuhnskin, David D. Levine, Linda Nagata, Michael Z. Williamson, and me, David F. Shirerod, talking about the Year's Best Military Science Fiction and Space Opera. I want to welcome all of the uh, contributors we have on today. First up, uh, Matthew Johnson. He's the author of the novel Fall from Earth, which he describes as a feminist Confucianist space opera. We have to pick up a copy of that. It sounds interesting. want to know what that looks like. Uh, as well as the short story collection Irregular Verbs and Other Stories. He's had his short fiction appear in Asimov's On Spec, Space and Time, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and uh, quite a few other places that we don't have time to list. He was also recently re-elected as Director of, at Large of CEFWA. Matthew, uh, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. I should mention also that I'm at a bowling alley, if anyone uh, wonders about the noises in the background. <laughs> Just joining us, uh, joining us from uh, the bowling alley, Matthew Johnson. Yeah, I'm joining uh, from, from Cosmic Bowling in Ottawa. All right, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> uh, also joining us, not from Cosmic Bowling, I assume, maybe you guys are bowling together, is uh, Derek Kunskin. He's had work appear in Blackgate, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, On Spec, and Best Horror of the Year. He's uh, something of a regular contributor to Asimov's. Persephone Descending, which is the story we'll be talking about here shortly, was his first publication, Analog, and Starship Sofa. Uh, that, uh, By the way, that Starship Sofa podcast is up now. If you prefer your fiction to enter your brain through your ears, you can listen to it there. He's been shortlisted for the Aurora Award and has uh, won the Asimov's Reader's Poll Award. Derek, thanks for uh, joining us today on the podcast. No, thanks for having me here, David. Um, you're right. I decided not to go bowling for this uh, podcast. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, also here is David D. Levine. Uh, he is the author of the novel Arabella of Mars, which will be out next year, so keep your eyes peeled for that one, uh, as well as over 50 short science fiction and fantasy stories. He's won the Hugo Award and has been shortlisted for another Hugo, a Campbell and a Nebula. His works appeared in Asimov's Analog, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and five, or I guess now six, years' best anthologies, among other places. Uh, in 2010, he uh, spent two weeks at a simulated Mars base in the Utah desert. Uh, David, thanks for uh, coming down from Mars and uh, joining us. It's my pleasure. You'll have to put up with a 20-minute delay for my, for my reply, so. <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll edit that out in post. <laughs> All right, and uh, Linda Nagata is here. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with her again. She's a Nebula and Locus Award-winning author. Her short story, Nahiku West, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, was a runner-up for the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award, and her uh, novel, 
the military thriller The Red First Light was a finalist for both the Campbell Award and the Nebula. Uh, she's best known for her science fiction, but she also writes fantasy. You can get a taste of that in her uh, Scoundrel Lit series, Stories of the Puzzle Lands, or uh, you can also find one of her fantasy stories in Operation Arcana, which uh, came out from Bain oh, a little while back, uh, edited by Joseph, John Joseph Adams. We do that podcast on that one. Uh, anyways, Linda, thanks for uh, coming back on the Bain Free Radio Hour. Well, thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And finally, last but not least, we have Michael Z. Williamson. He's retired military, having served 25 years in the U.S. Army and U.S. Air Force. He was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Desert Fox. He's consulted on military matters, weapons, and disaster preparedness for the Discovery Channel and the Outdoor Channel. And he's editor-at-large for the wildly popular survivalist blog, Survival Blog. Uh, With John Ringo, he is the author of the novel The Hero. And uh, Flying Solo, he is the author of the books in the Freehold series, which include Freehold, Better to Beg Forgiveness, Do Unto Others, and When Diplomacy Fails. Uh, All those are out from Bain. And uh, incidentally, his short story, Soft Casualty, which is in uh, Year's Best, uh, which we'll be talking about today, is also set in that Freehold universe. Uh, His new novel, A Long Time Until Now, is a military time travel survivalist thrill ride. Uh, It came out uh, about a week ago from Bain as well. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks. I got booted offline there, but I'm back now, so let's continue. All right. Well, um, I'm going to just kind of go around and ask you guys some stories about some questions about your stories, rather. Um, it was a real pleasure discovering all these. I was the editor on, uh, I'm just going to call it Year's Best from now on, but we're talking about Year's Best Military Science Fiction and Space Opera. And uh, just a real joy uh, discovering these stories that you all had written and uh, a pleasure getting them in the anthology. Hopefully we can get some, uh, you know, eyes on them here. Uh, Derek, let's start with you. Um, your story with Persephone Descending is about uh, Marie Claude, and uh, she is uh, they're on, she's on Venus, and there's some uh, sabotage, and she's got to sort of use her wiles to survive the very harsh climate of Venus. Um, one thing that drew me into the story, I mean, it's very edge of your seat. Is she going to make it? How is she going to do this? Uh, how is she going to get out of this? But I also like the way in which it was told, which is that in addition to that standard edge of your seat third person, you uh, intersperse these different uh, storytelling techniques, use encyclopedia articles, uh, trial transcripts, uh, all kinds of things like that, newspaper articles, and uh those non-traditional methods gave the story to me a sense of reality that this really happened. Um, and while the third person sections where we're following her, you know, kept up the suspense and in a way they, they complement each other really well where you build it up to a, uh, you know, a peak of tension there. And then we cut away and we, and we get a, a little bit of history. And uh, so we're left on the edge of our seat till we return back. Um, I was just wondering how you came up with this approach and why you chose to use use it uh, when telling Persephone Descending. Well, thanks, David. I, I love exploring strange places in science fiction, whether I'm reading it or writing it. Um, but there's always a problem if you're dumping too much information in the narrative. It can be the wrong thing to do artistically. What I was thinking about when I was putting in these alternative narrative styles was um, 
one, it would give me access to other voices uh, so that it breaks up the, the sense of voice that I have and gives a, a, a bit of a different flavor. Um, it lets me manage the pacing too. As you mentioned, like right at the, the peak moment, there, there was a bit of a break because I wanted to draw out that tension. And, and at the same time, it also allows me to give more information than I might otherwise be able to give by opening the curtain for the reader onto, uh, you know, part of the world that I found fascinating, but doesn't fit exactly into the narrative uh, in, in a third person sense. So it, it was a way to play with uh, things and, and, um, and, and have a, a, a bit of a different pacing. Yeah, and this is part of, uh, we should say, sort of a larger uh, world you're building. Is that correct? That um, this, uh, where Quebec has broken off from Canada and has uh, colonized Venus. Could you just kind of walk us through maybe a little bit of the history that plays into Persephone descending in this world that you're building? Sure. So what I what I posit in the story, and this is this is part of a cycle of stories in a future history that I'm building. But um, you know, by the time Quebec does separate and become its own nation, many of the other key parts of of the solar system that one might want to colonize, um, you know, are already used uh, or or taken, let's say. And um, and so Quebec has the option of of uh, trying to colonize Venus, which is not really a, a smart bet. But the thing is, there's a lot of scientific things that can be learned in Venus. And in fact, in other stories, I'll explore some of those scientific discoveries that are later on going to transform Quebec into a much, much larger uh, power that I'm going, uh, going to use in other stories. So um, that was a lot of fun to do. But I, I was thinking, too, that, um, you know, my, my family has been Quebecois for about 250 years. And I realized as a Canadian author, what do I bring to you know, the table into the larger SF conversation. And, you know, one of the things I've heard said is they say that class is to Britain what race is to the United States and what language is to Canada. And Quebec has obviously lived a generation of public discourse about its place in the world and its identity, whether it should be part of Canada, whether it should be its own country. But the debate about identity and the politics of identity are, are really corrosive on the social fabric. Like, I mean, at times they need to happen, but as they go on and on, it can really become something a bit acidic. And as as a writer and an observer of this and somebody who lives in Quebec, I realized that the acidity of Venus was something that I wanted to use as a metaphor for some of the explorations of my own reflections on those public debates that are happening in my province. And so... Um, Artistically, and you know, my my own family-wise, plus where I live, it, it all kind of came together, and uh, in this place, and and it all made sense for the story and what I wanted to try and do and explore. That's interesting. The acidity of Venus mirroring, you know, acidity in a uh, metaphorical sense. I, that was not something that had occurred to me, but it's very interesting and adds that layer of richness. Um, you touched on this a little bit, but um, as I was reading this, um, I was reminded of a couple things. One, in a weird way, which I'll explain, which is one uh, was Fargo, the Coen Brothers movie, and they had talked about, um, not so much in tone or subject matter, obviously, but um, they had talked about when they had made Fargo, which they're from Minnesota, that uh, it had almost seemed exotic to ho the Hollywood producers and Hollywood people because it was this whole world they weren't familiar with, of middle American, you know, Minnesotans. And um, that's kind of how I felt about this, is that it, Quebec is not a place that I, I know much about or am as familiar with, certainly I think 
many Americans maybe aren't. And so this kind of had a, you know, this would have been a fine story from a different perspective, but that layer of being from Quebec just added some something kind of exotic to it. And the other thing that it reminded me of was um, the horror and mystery writer Joe Lansdale talking about how he had what broke him out of being a good writer into, you know, sort of really breaking in was when he realized he could write about East Texas, where he's from, and the people that he knew in East Texas. And I just wonder, have you always written from this uh, Quebecois, my pronunciation I'm sure is bad, but that perspective, or is that something you kind of have come to? And uh, it seems like you really found your voice with that. I just wonder what that process was like of coming to that, uh, writing from those experiences. Um, it's actually something relatively new for me. I, I wrote the story about two years ago, um, and before then, I'd almost exclusively written about aliens. And so my other stories that appeared in Asimov's and OnSpec and in other places, very little time did they actually have humans in them. So this is one of my first stories with humans in them. And, um, yeah, I, I also felt when I was writing about the survival tale on Venus that it was it was a bit soulless, like there was something missing to it. It was a good adventure, but it, it, it lacked something. And so uh, as soon as I thought for a second that, like I related it to what I was reading in the news about the the identity politics, the latest discourse in Quebec, um, it made total sense to me that, you know, I, I, I really should be writing about where I live and bring that into it. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say I'm the perfect voice to bring that out, um, but I mean, you're right. Nobody else is bringing out the the Quebecois, although Alastair Reynolds, I think, did a bit, but um, not in the same way. Yeah, and you know, I should also mention while we're um, talking about these uh, interesting but kind of heady ideas of identity politics and such, that this is a, a pretty rip roaring tale. At the same time, uh, you know, you're gonna. Like I said, you're going to be at the edge of your seat uh, wondering if Marie Claude is going to, is going to make it. So um, I don't want people to think that this is a dry treatise on uh, Canadian identity. It's it's definitely definitely not dry. It's definitely an exciting story. So I uh, just want to appreciate that. And uh, now I'm going to turn it to uh, David D. Levine. Uh, his story is also set on Venus, but it is a very, very different kind of Venus. Um I think of this story as the love child of black mask and amazing stories in a way it's uh, set on the Venus we wanted to have, you know, a swampy jungle world with amphibious aliens and, uh, you know, eternal cloud cover rainy. And uh, it follows the story of a detective um, whose name, Mike Drayton. Uh, he goes Mike Drayton from Los Angeles. Yeah. Mike Drayton. He goes from Los Angeles to Venus on a airship. And um, it's just a lot of fun. And uh, I was just wondering, David, so this is this is an old kind of pulp tale. And uh, I love these kind of things. And I love this one, obviously. And I just wanted to ask you, you had a story in uh, Gardner Dozois and George R. R. Martin's Old Mars, which is a similar kind of thing, drawing on uh, Bradbury and, and Burroughs-esque tales of Mars that we, again, know doesn't, don't, doesn't really exist. And I just wondered, what, was your, what are your thoughts? Why are these story is still so appealing. I mean, we know there's not uh, froggies, you know, aboriginals on Venus. Uh, you know, science fiction is supposed to be about, you know, strictly looking forward and using real science. Uh, and yet these, these still have a, just a great appeal. There's, uh, there's something about them that 
I just really enjoy, and I, I really enjoyed this story. And I wondered, what is the appeal to you to writing in this sort of fantasy world of a Venus that doesn't exist? Well, this goes a long, long way back. Um, I read an essay once, which I've never been able to track down since, uh, called The Science Fiction Archipelago, talking about how science fiction is descended directly from the South Seas adventure tales of the 17 and 1800s, that um, if you look at your kind of default science fiction universe, where the it's about a ship, it's about a captain, the captain has a lot of independence, probably doesn't have a lot of communication back with their uh, with their uh, superiors back on Earth. Um, distances between planets can be measured in months rather than seconds or weeks or, or years or, or centuries. Um, really, the the standard science fiction universe is a universe of sea travel. And this uh, this story is actually the third story I've written in the universe of my forthcoming novel, Arabella of Mars, uh, which started off with the basic idea of let's just posit that we had a solar system that was just like ours except it was full of air so that people could go to other planets um, with technology of a much earlier era. So what would be the history of an Earth that was in a solar system like that? And I originally started off with the idea that this could be written as hard science fiction, but I very quickly realized that a solar system full of air would A, not be stable, uh, the, the planets, due to the, due to the friction of the air, the planets would spiral down into the sun long before life could evolve. B, uh, air really isn't all that transparent, and so instead of a sun, if you looked up into the sky, you would just see sort of a vague red glow, if that. Uh, so again, it would be very difficult for life to evolve. And C, even with the solar system being full of air, it would take far, far too long to get anywhere. So I finally decided, okay, this isn't hard science fiction. It's actually a fantasy, and I'm going to run with it and make it as scientific as I can anyway. So starting with the idea that probably humanity would have discovered that it's possible to travel to other planets, probably in like the 16 or 1700s uh, by balloon, that I realized that this universe gives me the ability to write not a future history, but an entire alternate history. Uh, a sci- I can write science fiction stories set on other planets in the 1600s, 1700s, any time up to and up to the present and, and uh, into the future. Um, and so I've been exploring this. Uh, the uh, the novel Arabella is set in 1813. I wanted to write a Regency adventure with airships. Um, the short story in Old Mars. The Wreck of the Mars Adventure came off of a question that one of my first readers asked me when reading Arabella, which is, how did they get to Mars in the first place? So I wrote the story of the first Englishman on Mars, who was Captain Kidd. Yes, that Captain Kidd. The one in Years Best uh, was, I just wanted to explore something more in the 20th century. And I call this, um, I call it Venus Noir. This story was most directly inspired by Northwest Smith, which was a series of stories back in the 30s and 40s by, uh, was that Sprague de Camp? Um, There was kind of a consensus universe in the early days of science fiction that Mars was a desert uh, with canals and Venus was a swampy jungle. And uh, the thing is, of course, that having a solar system full of air is one thing, but actually having it interesting to visit those other planets implies that they're inhabited. And if I'm going to make it inhabited, I can't have Venus anything like the Venus that we have um, in our actual universe. So really, this is just, it's to, make, it's to make interesting stories possible that I work the universe into something more like the classic pulp universe. Um, and so I've got a lot of other ideas set all up and down the timeline 
um, looking into things that might happen in this universe where travel to other planets is something that's easy. Yeah, that, that's that's great. I guess I didn't realize that yeah, these all all these stories tied in together. The one in Old Mars and then uh, this one here. Um, one of the things that you just hit on that is the appeal to me is that you what you said it, that travel to other planets is easy, and I think um, you know that that's one of the things that appealed to me is you know you read those old fifties, forties science fiction tales, and we didn't really know how big and how spread out how the universe was and how unlikely finding intelligent life was, you know, you know, you could get to places with intelligent civilizations with a rocket, which we know is probably not going to work. And so it kind of, um, makes everything, uh, I don't know. It, it, it brings the scale down in a, in a pleasing way to me to read the, to, to read this kind of tale, you know, um, it's, it's something that feels, although it's totally fantastical, uh, kind of weirdly attainable at the same time. I've done a lot of things in the world building here to make the whole thing more familiar. I mean, I know that aliens are unlikely to resemble giant frogs. I mean, in I have basically just gone with the the typical default, uh, the stereotype for all these things. Yes, Mars is a desert. Yes, it's covered with canals. The Martians look like crabs. The Venusians look like frogs. Um, that basically making it as much like Earth as possible um, in some ways, it's a failure of imagination, but in my case, it's it's homage. I'm definitely doing an homage to those great old stories from the 30s and 40s, which were on my dad's shelf when I was a kid, so I grew up reading them. Yeah, well, it definitely transports you right back there. And uh, I think I mentioned it's kind of got a uh, Chandler-esque, uh, Philip Marlowe-esque um, main character here, a uh, detective who is... Uh, called to Venus uh, by a wealthy silk merchant to help him solve uh, a mystery. And uh, are you a fan? I mean, I guess obviously you're a fan of those old black mask um, detective tales. Uh, was it, Have you written stuff like that before? Or was that something you'd always wanted to write and uh, now you got a chance to fold it into this uh, science fantasy universe? This is the first time I've written something that's explicitly noir like this. Um, I was fortunate enough to get the uh, to get the invitation to write this story when I was at a writers' conference with a bunch of people, including Daniel Abraham, who is a whiz at plotting. Um, and I just brainstormed this out with him. Um, he's given a lot of thought to noir. I actually had to do a lot of research on noir to write this one because I knew I wanted to write something noir-ish. And I, I was looking online, finding out, you know, what is noir? And you know, there's a lot of things that are inside noir that you won't necessarily know if you don't really think about it. That noir is all about honor. That the noir hero is the honorable man in a universe of dishonorable people. And the you've got you've got a tension here between honor and legality. That the the noir hero will often do something that's illegal, but he will always be driven by honor. And and it's always a he, almost always a he that the, the noir hero is going to be driven by loyalty. Uh, the noir hero is typically driven by loyalty to their partner or their ex-partner. Um, and love is only a complication in noir. Uh, that the real, the real key of a noir story is loyalty and friendship between men, although there's plenty of betrayal and other things like that. But there's always going to be, uh, in noir, there's always going to be a twist a turn, a very complicated, often overcomplicated plot. And I tried to factor in as many of these things as I could. 
So I was basically very intellectually building something to hit as many of those more notes as I could. You know, I think it was successful. You managed to get a lot in in a, in a short story. And you know, what you were saying, the honor, uh, there's that famous Chandler quote, which I will butcher at this point, where um, a man walks down the mean streets who is himself not mean, right, or something along those lines. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you definitely capture that with uh, Mike Drayton in this story. So, um, all right, well, thanks, David. I'm going to I'm gonna move on uh, here to um, – Oh, let's see. Who's up next? Mike Williamson. Uh, let's talk to you. You got this story is like we said, set in your freehold universe. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. Soft Casualty, and uh, it was on uh, Bain.com. It's a Bain.com story. And um, maybe if you could, Mike, just real briefly for those maybe who have not read the series, if you could just give us a thumbnail sketch of what is the background to the freehold uh, universe. Oh, thumbnail. Well, <laughs> and each, <laughs> yes. book's, each book's 135,000 words. Uh, yeah. Can you condense that down to 30 seconds, please? No, but take as much time as you need, but just to give the people kind of just to orient them to the world of, of the stories. Uh, the UN is effectively a um, uh, unified government, but there's some, uh, a number of colony roles and a number of independent systems, and... Uh, Basically, due to distance and economics, they're less beholden. They have uh, their own informal alliance. And then uh, as the universe continues, you know, they, more and more of them are going independent. Um, uh, Freehold Organia uh, goes, uh, from their point of view, way off the rails, um, hardcore libertarian, and uh, becomes a, um, a, a thorny problem. And... Uh, Politics breaks down. They escalate bit by bit to more violence, and uh, you know, slap fights never get smaller. Uh, <clears throat> so there's a war. Uh, the war gets resolved with a huge number of casualties, and then in the later books, they're trying to make amends and work on the same team again. <clears throat> yeah, I think that summed it up well. You you did it. Um, so I like this story a lot because I am as much as I love science fiction, I like horror almost as much or just as much. And this, to me, had a great uh, that EC Comics Tales from the Crypt kind of vibe. Um, you know, that perfect wryly humorous but horrific at the same time um, with some, some things you don't necessarily see coming. Are you a fan of that stuff, and did that factor in when you were writing this? No, I'm not. You're not really. Well, you did. Well, you nailed it. <laughs> I was looking for. Uh, um, it, it's something I discussed with a friend actually quite some time ago, and unfortunately, he uh, he died uh, before the story was written, so he never got to see the conclusion. Um, but we were going through uh, psyops. You know, what what can you do to completely freak out your opponent and destroy their willingness to fight? And uh, some of them are in. Uh, some of them are in freehold. Some are in the weapon. Um, you know, depends. You know, the the targets you choose and how you choose to attack them give a um, <coughs> excuse me, give a um, a presentation. You know, what are you willing to do? What does the enemy think you're willing to do? You know, if, if they if they think that they're that nothing is safe, that there's uh, there's no middle ground, there's nowhere they can go. It puts them into a uh, either a different bargaining or a different uh, tactical position. Of course, you've got to be careful of overdoing it, or 
not overdoing it enough, because in that case they get uh, very mean very quickly. Well, to destroy their willingness to fight, not drive them into a, a rage of uh, uh, um, disagreeability. And that was one of the ideas. Uh, you know, it was, it's local, it's improv, it's nothing official. It's just something some uh, rebel decided was uh, a workable way of um, scaring people. Yeah, well, I, I think it would work. Um, it's it's pretty. Uh... I don't, I don't know. I guess we shouldn't say what it is. You have to you have to buy the buy the book to to figure out what it is. Um, well, you mentioned talking about some of the other books in the series, and I know that those are told from different perspectives. And I, and that's one thing to me that um, is interesting about series, um, whether it's on television or a movie series or, of course, literature, is that you because you've got a set world that you're working in, you, you are free to explore different points of view in it, right? And um, mm-hmm. this is told from the point of view of the, the UN forces, the bad guys, really. And um, I know some of the other books are also told, again, from different perspectives. And I just wonder, is that, is that something that appeals to you, and how do you go about writing that, you know, um, you know exploring it from, from the bad guys' point perspective, writing it from their uh point of view and uh what's that like and, and do you enjoy doing that is that one of the the pleasures you get from writing a, a longer series like this um well, I, every every character has a different uh, perspective um yeah you know, both in, you know fantasy and in the real world um everyone sees their parts of the picture some people see a larger part of the picture and then of course every individual's got their own abilities um you know in the military i know people who had one relatively safe deployment, you know, effectively out of the combat zone and couldn't handle it and, you know, had a mental breakdown. And then I know people who volunteered for six, eight, or ten rotations in combat and handled it just fine. And, you know, you can't criticize somebody who tried their best, reached the limit of what they were able to do, and did it honorably. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they don't have the same perspective as somebody who you know, lives for the excitement and, uh, and and handles it easily. So there's that. There's the um, the civilian versus the military point of view throughout the universe. Um, then there, what, which culture and society were they raised in? Are they in a uh, you know an egalitarian society, a statist society? <clears throat> Are they used to a, uh, a technological culture with lots of uh, social safety, or are they on a frontier where there is none of that? You know, all of this plays into what happens and what they, how they see it. Yeah, so just, uh, yeah, using people's backgrounds as a way to explore, um, yeah, different, different perspectives on the same conflict. Uh, so let me, uh, let me now turn to uh, Linda uh, Nagata. Uh, Linda's got the distinction of she's got two stories in the anthology, um, Codename Delphi and Light and Shadow. And I want to talk about Codename Delphi first because it is actually the first story in Year's Best. Um, and it concerns a, a handler named Karen Larson, and she is a sort of a remote uh, – she controls these drones uh, which assist with um, combat. And um, she herself is not engaged in combat in a way. And I read a lot of drone stories, and uh, many of them very, very good. But what this one was interesting to me is that it was 
uh, not drones as we use them now, uh, sort of remote control, um, well, you know what drones are. And, but neither was it drones as, you know, AIs, which we, I saw a lot of. Um, this is sort of an interesting mixture where the, the drone pilot is assisting boots on the ground uh, infantry. And I thought that was a very interesting idea. I wonder where that came from. And if you think, you know, we hear so much about technology in the military and, you know, um, less and less you need to put soldiers in harm's way. But here, you know, we've got a future war where their boots on the ground are still very much a part of it. Is that something you, you kind of foresee as always being part of warfare? And uh, how did that play into writing the story? Well, the idea behind the drones, first I should probably say that um, both these stories are in the same story world as my novel, um, The Red First Light, which is going to be re-released by Saga at the end of the month. So a lot of the technology that I'm using here came out of that novel. And um, with the drones, I just had in mind that they would be uh, basically a communications and surveillance platform, that they'd be in the air all the time. And so you couldn't really load weapons on them because of, you know, of the weight and the need to um, you know, reload ammo and that sort of thing. So it's based, it's, they're, they're, the soldiers call them angels because it's basically an angel watching over you. And it gives them extra eyes on the battlefield. It's, they fly high enough for the, sort of the conflict that they're in they're taking part in that they're not really vulnerable to um, to being shot down easily. So what it is is that they work as a coordinated team. So we have the, the handler, which is um, Delphi from the, the story title. And um, she oversees what the soldiers are doing. She oversees what um, the drone sees. And there's a lot of um, AI assistance that I'm imagining here so that the drone itself is actually flown by an AI, but it's not the conscious autonomous sort. It's just similar to um, Google's language recognition program. It's a learning program that can handle the details and then the, um, the, human, um, the human guidance can come in and send the drone in specific directions or they can leave it to work on its own to um, survey the surrounding terrain. So that's where that came from. And um, I mean, as to infantry continuing, I think it, it depends, you know, what kind of war are you going to be fighting? If you're fighting um, you know, something like the Iraq war where you're, you're amongst civilians and you have um, insurgent populations coming in and you don't know who the enemy is, but you can't do an all-out war, then I don't know how else you would do it. I mean, I guess you could... It, it's fun. It's interesting to kind of think about all the different ways that you could approach this because maybe you could have autonomous um, robotic soldiers come in, but at the same time, how how would you control them? Um, would, would jamming be an issue if you were trying to do oversight? And... Um, in the end, for me, it's just a much more interesting story if it, it involves um, human soldiers on the ground. And then you have to deal with the, the consequences and the moral questions. That's, the thing that was interesting to me is this story, 
we're at a remove in a way because we're following uh, Delphi, um, Karen Larson. That's her, I guess, handle. Um, and she is, you know, she's not in the middle of the battle. She's sitting, you know, safely behind a bank of monitors. And yet, at the same time, because of her character and her, uh, I guess, values or, or moral compass, um, we still care very deeply. It's, it's at one point, you know, you talked about how. Some of the handlers think of it as a video game, but she can't see it as a video game. And I thought that was just a really interesting, um, just an interesting take. And I think the other thing about it, and I'll, this will maybe segue into um, Light and Shadow, your other story in the collection, and that is that you're dealing with, um, you know, even though she's not in the midst of things, and there is a toll that can be taken, and. Um, I don't want to spoil anything about the story, but we see that happen uh, in in both stories. And although uh, Codename is is a little bit more of an uplifting, upbeat story, uh, we still deal with that serious issue of um, uh, the horrors of war, I guess. And uh, so anyway, so I do want to segue into Light and Shadow. And um, so in this one, the the conceit, and I'll ask you to maybe explain this better than I can, is... um, members of the military wear these skull caps that essentially blunt emotion. Um, I just wonder if you could just walk people through, you know, sort of the central conceit of that and how that works and how maybe it doesn't work so well. Yeah, the the idea behind the skull caps is um, it's a neural enhancement. It's intended to give more control over a soldier's emotional state. So the idea is that there's um, tiny implants throughout the brain that monitor and um, stimulate neural activity. And this is kind of based on an idea that um, it may be possible that um, subjective experiences, um, thoughts and emotions, that they can be associated with specific patterns of activity in the brain. So the skull cap itself is um, it's a sensor that's in wireless communication with these um, implants that are in the brain. And it can control the activity of those implants so that it can um, stimulate certain emotional states or calm a soldier down or keep the soldier in a state of continuous alertness or conversely um, send the soldier into a state of sleep when it's, when it's downtime. And the Skullcap's activity is overseen by an AI. And that AI is charged with keeping a balanced mental state, or at least you know, within certain parameters, among many other things. And so um, what Light and Shadow touches on is that um, the idea that severe stress, battlefield stress, can cause long-term changes in brain chemistry. Um, but a, there was a study that came out that suggested that treating this stress within a few hours of occurrence could reduce PTSD symptoms. So I'm, I kind of started from that idea. And um, so in Light and Shadow, what we have are the soldiers who are doing these nightly missions, um, infantry. And um, they've been wearing skull caps for a long time. And one of them decides for reasons that come out in the story to stop wearing the skull cap, except for when um, she's absolutely required to. And what they find out is that um, they've they've become addicted to them, basically. So because the the skull cap is 
helping to balance their brain chemistry. Once they take it off, the, um, your normal brain functions have basically given up some of their um, some of their control to the skull cap. So it's it's kind of like coming off of a, an addictive drug. Your 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 emotions can go in many different directions, and that is the basis of that story. Yeah, and I think it it said a lot about. Um soldiers returning from, you know, you talk about when they uh, go on leave or when their duty tour duties up, you turn it in. It's military property and how, you know, difficult it is to read, to adjust, like you're saying. And I think that, you know, acts as a as sort of metaphor, right, for um, what happens when you, you come home from war. It's a different, it's a different life that you've got to adjust to. And then uh, finally, let me turn to Matthew uh, Johnson, uh, story rules of engagement. It's it reminded me a lot in a way of of light and shadow, although they're very different stories. But they're dealing with this, um, you know, what happens after in a way. And uh, in addition, you've got something. There's implants in your story uh, that are are not dissimilar from the skull caps in, in Linda's story, although they work a little bit differently. Could you kind of walk us through what are, what are these implants in uh, rules of engagement? How do they work? And uh, what's that all about? Sure. Well, uh, the implants in my story were actually based a little bit on what uh, Linda was describing as happening right now, which is uh, technologies to try to uh, prevent or uh, mitigate PTSD. So these are ones that uh, essentially interact with the brain, and one of the things they do is that they give you access to all kinds of data feeds, particularly from the drones that you're working with. They give you access to a translator if you need one, uh, things like that. And, in fact, in my story, the implants are one of the reasons why people join up. Uh, it's sort of the equivalent of a GI Bill because having one of these implants, they're expensive, uh, but it opens up a whole lot of job opportunities. One of the characters, when he goes home, actually he's able to get a job uh, doing uh, traffic management because he has experience as a drone operator. So when he go and he's got the upgraded implant, which in my story they're allowed to keep, so he goes home and he's able to use that experience and that technology to get that job. But uh, what's central to the story and where the title of the story comes from is that uh, the implants are used to provide and uh, reinforce the rules of engagement. Because, of course, the problem always is every soldier needs to know the rules of engagement. They need to know when they're allowed to fire, when they're allowed to do what. But, of course, you don't want the enemy to know those. That can be a tremendous tactical advantage if the enemy knows them. So the idea here is that by basically negative reinforcement, uh, a buzz that starts out just mildly irritating and gets stronger and stronger, the key the longer you try to, try to go against the instructions from the implant, you're guided into following the rules of engagement. But, of course, the, uh, the soldiers pretty quickly find out a various variety of hacks to get around uh, the ways that the implant limits what they can do. Yeah, you say there's kind of there's three ways to do it. One is you you just blunt the buzz with uh, alcohol or drugs. Um, and the mm. other one I like was you say you you if you can convince yourself that you're not really breaking the rules, 
you know, if you, if you truly in your heart believe you're not breaking the rules and the implant won't kick in. Right. So, um, you know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not robbing this you. guy. He wanted to give me his wallet, you know, right. If you can convince yourself of mm-hmm. that, then it won't kick in. Yeah. yeah. You can really believe it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we see that. We see some of that in the story that happens. Like we see it, the, the results of a few of those cases where people, you know, made themselves really believe something so they could go against the implant. Um, and then there's the third one, which is uh, where you, uh, one of the characters in the story, well, not actually in the story, but he's sort of a legend among the characters in the story where uh, he does everything he can to go against the implant in little ways and builds and builds and builds and builds uh, and then stops, stops breaking the rules. Uh, and the idea is that it's like hitting yourself with a hammer. It feels so good when you stop. Uh, so that was the, the way that that character uh, hacked the implant. Yeah, well, I love that. I was going to ask you to explain it, so I'm glad you did. It was... This is a pretty, uh, it's a pretty serious story, but the, I love that little bit of humor, you know, in a way there. That's kind of made me, uh, smile when I read that. That was pretty funny. Um, kind of like with, uh, Derek's story, this is told a little bit non, in a non-standard, ta- oh, I don't know, that was on the phone. Uh, kind of in a non-standard way. It's, it's almost written like a magazine feature article, like you might see in The New Yorker or, uh, something of that nature. And again, I just was wondering, you know, uh, where that came from, why you chose that. Uh, It starts out with the quote, uh, a heading, a reporter at large, you know, uh, this is told from some reporter's Mm. point of view. Yeah. And how that 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 came about. Actually, if you read, yeah, if you read the New Yorker, that's one of their categories of articles is a reporter at large. And that basically means it's one of their investigative reporters who's, found a story and chased it long enough to get an article. And that was basically my, what I wanted to do with it, was that uh, I did want it to read like something from a, a New Yorker article from the future, where there's, uh, like those great articles that you know, take you days to read and are totally absorbing, uh, which I, I hope I imitate it, uh, but it's got three different uh, time frames going on. It's got what happened to the soldiers uh, when they were, uh, in the field, got what happened to them when they came back, and it's also got the storyline uh, of the reporter herself investigating and finding out what happened. So every now and then she inserts herself into the story. It's one of these things where it's about 80% third person or 90% third person, and every now and then there's a first person bit that reminds you that this is actually someone telling you uh, the story. And it's just, I guess because it was near future, I don't write a lot of near future SF, um, and because in some ways it's quite a political story, uh, it made sense to me that th- this is how that story would be told. Yeah, I think it worked well, and I think you, yeah, that three kind of three pronged uh, switching back and forth, telling different stories. Uh, I think that really did work and brought a layer of uh, complexity and sort of verisimilitude that you might not have. Uh, so I, I do think it, it, it felt like a New Yorker from the future to me. So, um, all right, well, let's, uh, we're kind of running out of time here. This was a great discussion. I just want to end, let's go around the metaphoric circle. We're not actually in a circle. Um, and if you guys want to just talk about maybe a, a space opera or military science fiction series or movie or book that was, uh, you know, an, uh, kind of 
what are your favorites that you might recommend to people? Of course, once they finish reading the year's best military science fiction and space opera, and when they're hungry for more, what can they go look for that, that you guys enjoy? Uh, David, uh, what about you? What do you think? Space opera, military science fiction, worth taking a look at? Um, well, I can recommend the Bolo series by Keith Wommer. Um, I'm very fond of the stories of Ian Banks, uh, which could be classed as space opera. Um, and I think probably uh, the best space opera in the visual um, in, in the visual medium is the first Star Wars movie, um, the, uh, the 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 one that was later retitled A New Hope. Yeah, not Episode One. <laughs> yes, no, number uh, four, which was first, versus number one, which was fourth. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, Mike, what about you? Uh, besides the Freehold series, which uh, everyone should read, what else? What else you got? Um, I, I was a huge fan of, well, I still am, of uh, uh, the stuff Heinlein did, uh, Moon of the Harsh Mistress, Starship Troopers. Um, I actually read both of those right after I finished uh, Basic. Um, Joe Haldeman's Forever War gives a fascinating counter view of uh, a, a draftee in Listy um, versus uh, you know, a uh, career academy officer and you know the differing politics between the uh, someone raised in the uh, 30s and someone raised in the 60s and 70s, and um, then uh, <clears throat> a lot of uh, Purnell stuff for the political uh, background behind the the fighting. Um, you know, there's there's a whole bunch out there, and of course uh, um, Drake's uh, Hammer Slammers universe is uh, gritty, and I mean that's horrifying on its uh, by itself. You know, there's uh, no punches pulled. It's you know, war is brutal, and you know, you, you want to stay out of it as much as possible. Um, so all of those were uh, informative. There's still, still stuff I read and enjoy. And uh, you know, then my, of course, my experience is I'm, I'm a veteran, an immigrant. Um, I, I had a career mindset, but circumstances forced me into the reserves for a large chunk of it. But I, you know, could pulled a lot of uh, additional duty time. And uh, so, um, I, I, there's so much military stuff out there. I'd have to go look at my library. Yeah, sure. Well, you you definitely hit on some uh, classics there that everyone should be reading if they haven't already. Uh, Linda, what do you what do you got? Uh, space opera or military SF? Uh, do you want to recommend? I'm going to go pretty far back too, and I'm going to say um, Greg Benford's Great Sky River. In the follow-up with Across the Sea of Suns, and that's a it's a far future story in um, a story world where there is no faster than light travel, and um, humans have spread across the galaxy, but they've also run into uh, a mech race, and basically they've been we've been nearly wiped out. So Great Sky River starts on a planet where there are just a few surviving humans who live in a military formation as they try to figure out what to do to avoid extinction. And I just it was a very influential novel on me. It's a, exactly the sort of thing that I enjoy reading. So, again, it's Great Sky River by Greg Benford. All right. And, uh, Matthew, what do you think? What do you got? Uh, well, I'm going to recommend a book. Uh, I'm going last, so I have to get dig into the obscure stuff. But I'm going to recommend a book that's uh, out of print, 
and for legal reasons, unfortunately, is likely to remain so. But uh, if uh, if you're someone who likes to dig through the shelves at used bookstores, I recommend keeping an eye out for this one. It's called Princes of the Air by John M. Ford. Um, and I don't know if it's Ford's best book, but it's certainly one of the best, one of my favorite space operas. And what I love about it is that it it takes basically the the classical Newtonian system of something like uh, foundation, and it uh, applies chaos theory to it. And it's also just a tremendously rich and clever and funny uh, milieu with really uh, interesting characters and really human characters, which can be hard to do in space opera. Yeah, okay, great. So that, that'll give someone uh, some homework to, to track down a used copy of that then. Uh, appreciate you digging back into the archives. Uh, well, we've been talking about uh, the year's best military science fiction and space opera, which is out now from Bain. Uh, I want to thank everybody, uh, Derek, David, Michael, Linda, and Matthew for being here. And I also want to thank the other contributors. We would have loved to have everybody on, but unfortunately, time constraints and logistics wouldn't allow for that. Uh, but I just want to thank everyone again just uh, for being here and uh, discussing the stories and for writing such great stories to begin with. Thanks. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, David. And now we begin the complete serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, read by Tristan Morris. As always, this audiobook presentation is made possible by Audible.com. John Ringo is the creator of the New York Times best-selling Postline War series, which includes the novel A Hymn Before Battle, Gust Front, When the Devil Dances, Hell's Fair, and Eye of the Storm. He's also the author of the nationally best-selling techno-thriller novels about Mike Harmon. A more playful twist on the future is found in novels of the Looking Glass series, Into the Looking Glass, Vorpal Blade, Manxum Foe, and Claws That Catch the last three in collaboration with Travis S. Taylor. With David Weber, he's the author of March Up Country, March to the Sea, March to the Stars, and We Few. He just wrapped up his Black Tide Rising series, which is about a worldwide zombie outbreak and the rugged can-do men and women who aren't willing to leave the world to the infected. The first entry in that series is Under a Graveyard Sky, and we're pleased to present the first entry in our complete serialization of that novel now. Audible Inc. presents Under a Graveyard Sky Written by John Ringo Narrated by Tristan Morris Book One Light a Candle At the end of the river, the sundown beams, all the relics of a life long lived, here, weary traveler, rest your wand. Sleep the journey from your eyes. From turn loose the mermaids. Nightwish. Imaginarium. Chapter 1 Alas, Babylon, Q4E9, the text read. Bloody hell. And it really hadn't started out as a bad day. Weather was crappy, but at least it was Friday. Stephen John Professor Smith was six foot one, with sandy blonde hair and a thin, wiry frame. Most people who hadn't seen him in combat, and very few living had, considered him almost intensely laid back, which in general was the case. 
It came with the background. Once you'd been dropped in the dunny, few things not of equal difficulty were worth getting upset about. Until, possibly, now. He regarded the text from his brother, and wondered if this was how morning walkers on 9-11 felt. He knew the basic code. Alas, Babylon was a book about a nuclear war in the 1950s. And survivors in the aftermath. The novel by Pat Frank was still one of the best looks at post-apocalyptic life ever written. And he and Tom had agreed that it was the best choice for a code indicating a real, this-is-no-shit, general emergency. Not, I've got cancer, but grab the bug-out bag and activate your zombie plan. Which was why he wondered if this was the same feeling those morning New Yorkers had felt looking up at the gush of fire from the side of the Twin Towers. Disbelief. Sadness, even anger. His mouth was dry, palms clammy. His sphincter was doing the bit where it was simultaneously trying to press neutronium and let go all over his seat. He felt all the cycles of grief go through him in one brief and nasty blast. Tom was not a guy to joke about the end of the world. Something had hit, something or another. Despite knowing it had gone tits up, he hit reply. Confirm. The return message was immediate. Confirm, confirm, confirm. Q4E9. Confirm. Shit. The rest of the codes were the problem. Stacy and Tom were the crypto geeks. Of course, calling Tom a geek was a stretch. Nearly two meters tall and a former Australian SAS commando. The general manager for security and emergency response for the Bank of the Americas might have a background in crypto and enjoy the occasional alternative clubbing night. Geek was still a stretch. Tom's penchant for code, however, was part of that geeky side. While the games growing up had been a pain in the ass, Steve recognized them as a necessity in this case. Tom had come into possession of information that was still closely held. His text was a violation of not only his employment contracts, but, probably, federal law. He wasn't going to send asteroid inbound over an open network. Stacy would know what the code meant in a second. Despite his para-nickname of Professor, Steve was unfazed by both his wife and his brother being smarter than he. He was laid back, and preferred to be surrounded by people who were smarter, more effective, and more dangerous made his life a whole lot simpler. He looked up at the class full of teenagers working on their Friday afternoon history test. Byzantine emperors were about the last of his problems at the moment. He still wasn't sure about the codes, but he knew that he'd never see most of them again. Dead or alive, his life and theirs was about to change. He was going to miss some of them, but the protocols were clear. It was much the same as being a spy, really. If you'd been burned, you didn't hesitate. When the world was ending, you didn't worry about anything but the most basic issues, notably Stacy, Sophia, and Faith, in no particular order, that he desperately hoped, whatever this was, might test. Okay, even Stacy would agree, Sophia and Faith first, just in no particular order. He therefore calmly bent over, picked up his backpack, and stood up to leave. Mr. Smith, Chad Walker said, looking at him quizzically. Just going out for a bit, Steve said. Chad was one of the good ones. Most of the kids were good for values of good. 
As good as American kids got, anyway. Coddled, yes, but bright, by and large. Most didn't apply themselves, and the parents were mostly a pain in the ass. But it had been a good job, past tense. He walked down the mostly silent halls in a bit of a daze. At one level, it was senseless. Nobody walked out of a job they'd done for ten years without a wrench, and on the basis of two text messages. But it was what you did, if you'd prepared. You just walked away. He stopped outside the school's office and tried to assume an expression suitable for a distraught husband. Janice, he said, stepping into the office and brushing at his eyes. Stacy's been in an accident at the plant. They're taking her to the office. I need to pull Sophia out of class. Oh my God, the heavyset brunette said, her eyes wide. What happened? Unclear, Steve said. I'll call you from the hospital. Just please page for her to be brought up here while I talk with Mr. Navas. Okay, Janice said, fumbling at the intercom. The woman really was someone Steve was looking forward to leaving behind. He knocked on the principal's door and opened it without waiting for a reply. Steve, Mr. Navas said, cocking a quizzical eyebrow. Alvaro Navas was a decent assistant principal, all things considered. Another person among many Steve figured he'd never see again. However, it worked out. Stacy's being taken to the hospital, he said, somewhat shakenly. Injured at work. They, it sounded quite serious. That guarded, we're sure it's going to be fine from HR, which means it's not. I'm pulling Sophia out to go with me to the hospital, and I'd appreciate if you'd call Angleton Middle and have them bring up Faith so I can pick her up on the way by. Of course, Steve, Alvaro said. Anything we can do. I'll call you as soon as I know what's going on, Steve said. I think Janice is bringing up Sophia. So no idea what happened? Navis asked. They wouldn't say, Steve said shrugging his shoulders helplessly. I, I need to go check on Sophia. Of course, of course, Steve, Navis said, getting out of his chair. Whatever you need, if you need some time. Well, it's the weekend, fortunately, Steve said. I'll know more when I get to the hospital. Which hospital? Navis asked. Not even sure of that at this point, Steve said. Mercy, I assume. It's the closest. I've got to call back about that, just... I've got this handled. I'll get to you about what's going on. Call me at home if it's after work, Mr. Navis said, patting him on the back. Dad? Sophia asked, her eyes wide. The 15-year-old had gotten her father's looks and her mother's height. It wasn't a bad combination. With sandy blonde hair and 5'5", she seemed to have stopped growing up, or out. What's up? She had her backpack over her back. If she had anything left in the locker, it was going to have to stay there. Your mum, Steve said, then paused. We'll talk about it in the car. What happened to mom? Sophia said. We'll talk in the car, Steve said, taking her arm. She was injured at the plant. Mr. Navis, if you could call the middle school. Of course, Mr. Navis said. And call me. I will, Steve said. Oh, release slip. Oh, Janice said, fumbling with the papers piled on her desk. I've got it, Mr. Navis said, trying not to sigh. He pulled the form pad out from under a pile and quickly scribbled the necessities. There. Thank you, sir, Steve said. Good luck. Thank you, Mr. Navis said, frowning slightly. I think I should be wishing you that.
Yes, yes, Steve said, gesturing for Sophia to precede him through the door. Dad? Sophia said. In the car, Steve said, as they walked out of the building. It was a thin, nasty rain, cold for late spring, even in Virginia, which just fit his mood to a T. His car was most of the way across the teacher's parking lot, so he continued. Don't stop moving when I say this. It's not your mother. Apocalypse code from your Uncle Tom. What? Sophia said, stopping and starting to turn. I said keep walking, Steve said, grabbing her arm. Which is why you're going to drive. I need both ends free. You pulled me out of a test for some code from Uncle Tom? Sophia said, angrily. What about the dance tonight? By 8 p.m. we're going to be in full bug-out mode, Steve said. This is not a drill, Soph. I'll still need to check the codes, but it's an apocalypse code. As in, end of the world. What end? Sophia said, gesturing around. There certainly didn't seem to be any major issues. Cars continued speeding past the school. None of them seemed in any more hurry than they ever were. Missing the dance is going to be the end of the world. Not time for drama, miss, Steve said, getting in the passenger side. Drive. Okay, the 15-year-old said nervously. You want me to drive in an apocalypse? The apocalypse isn't here yet, Steve said, pulling out his phone again. Now be quiet, head to Faith School. Dad, this is crazy, Sophia said, starting the car. Just drive, Steve said. No music and no talking. Hello? This is Steve Smith, Stacy Smith's husband. Our daughter, Sophia. He let a little check enter his voice. She's been hit by a car in the school parking lot. I really need to talk to Stacy immediately. Yes, I understand. I got hit by a car? Sophia whispered. Steve waved his hand at her angrily, then nodded. Stacy, Alas, alas, alas. Sophia has been struck by a car in the parking lot, he said, robotically. I'm picking up Faith right now. Yes, I'll meet you at home. Then we'll go to the hospital. You have your phone again? I'm forwarding you a text. Okay. Call me when you're on the way. He hung up the phone, then pulled up a file. What was the robot voice about? Sophia asked, pulling carefully into traffic. False information versus true, Steve said. I mean, you could have really been hit by a car. The Alas code told her it was a real-world emergency, but not the one that I was conveying. Mom is going to be that pissed, you know, Sophia said. Part of our bargain was that if something hit the dunny, she'd go with it, Steve said, looking at a file. Oh, bloody hell. What? Sophia asked. Just concentrate on getting us to the middle school intact, Steve said, consulting his smartphone. He pulled up an app and punched in certain parameters. On the third hit, he'd found what he was looking for and dialed a phone number. Hello, my name is Jason Ransold with the Aurelius Corporation. We need to rent a boat matching the parameters of one you have for sale. Is there any way that we can get a two-week lease? No, we'd consider buying it if we could talk about the price. And I'd need to look it over. Would Saturday afternoon work for you? This is a snap kick for a major client. Of course, three would work perfectly. Thank you. I'll meet you there. Sailboat? Sophia said. That's full up bug out for a biological emergency. 
I finally got to pull up the code sheet, Steve said. Biological, viral, latent, wide release, previously undetected, currently no vaccine, hostile activities parameter. I got all that except latent and hostile. Wait, zombies? Something similar, Steve said, as they pulled up to the fortunately close middle school. Cell phone. Dad, cell, Steve said, pulling a burn phone out of the bag. This is your new one. Only the numbers on contact list. I have friends who... No, Steve said. You know why. I walked away from several people I like to maintain your uncle's cover. If it gets out... Uncle Tom loses his position, Sophia said, pulling out her phone and handing it over. And any support he can give us. But Brad Turner is going to have to take his chances, Steve said, taking the phone, then pocketing the burn phone. You get this when I'll get back. Thanks for all the trust, Dad, Sophia said, crossing her arms. I'm going to be trusting you to keep us all alive, Steve said, then handed over the phone. I guess that starts now. Prove you deserve it by not using it. Okay, Sophia said. Emergency conditions, Steve said. Yes, sir, Sophia said, then shrugged. I'll believe zombies when I see one. Despite the fact that I've just burned my job and your mother's, let's hope this is a false alarm, Steve said, getting out of the truck. What happened to Mom? Faith blurted the middle he walked into the school's office. Still not sure, Steve said. Can I get a release slip? What do you mean you don't know? Faith practically shouted. The 13-year-old had gotten her dad's height and her mother's looks, which honestly was a bit of a challenge for her older sister whom she already overtopped. Another inheritance was her mother's temper, but twice as passionate. In a guy, the term aggressive would be more commonly used. She also had something like male muscle density, and pain tolerance a delta would appreciate. She only played soccer because there wasn't a rugby team. On the rare trips to visit her Aussie grandparents, she positively delighted in Australian rules football. Although she just as passionately hated Rule 1, no weapons. Kintronics HR would only say she'd been injured, Steve said, taking the release form and signing for his daughter. On the other hand, the person I was talking to was pretty shaken up, so it's serious. Well then, let's roll, Faith said, snatching up her bag and darting out of the door. Goodbye, Steve said, waving as he went out the door. Apocalypse code from Uncle Tom, Sophia said as soon as Faith was in the car. Not a drill. Dad's already arranged the boat to steal. So, wait, Faith said. Mom's not... She's on her way home, Steve said, gesturing for Sophia to get in the passenger seat and climbing in the truck. We're in bug-out mode, and with any luck at all, we won't have to steal it. But what about... Faith started to ask. Phone, Sophia said, holding out a burn phone to her. Yours. You're serious? Zombies, Sophia said. No way, Faith said. We're not having a ZA. Where are the wrecked cars? The screaming people? Nobody's rising from the grave. False alarm. I've got a confirm from Uncle Tom, Steve said, pulling out of the parking lot. Parents were already forming up to pick up their precious snowflakes. Viral, not mystical. Zombie-like actions. Previously undetected. Pull the batteries. 
Already done on mine, Sophia said, pulling out Faith's. Okay, now it's done. Code indicates it's already spread, Steve said. So we could already have it? Sophia asked. That's not good. That's all we've got right now, Steve said. We'll get the rest as things go on. This had better be for real or I'm disowning this stupid family, Faith said, leaning back with her arms crossed and her head set. Put on your safety belt, Steve said. Safety just got much more important. If I had your phone, I could be checking for indications, Sophia pointed out. Steve considered that for a moment. The original plans hadn't included either daughters capable of information gathering or smartphones. The first requirement was gather the clan. Second was go off-grid. Going off-grid wasn't strictly necessary, but it reduced distractions. And Tom had the number for his backup, just as Steve had Tom's. Third was gather material. Then bug out. Only last look for indicators. Among other things, indicators were a way to track information security. Not on the phone, Steve said. If Tom's usage is being monitored, it could give away his tip if you search for zombie or plague off my phone. Just work the plan. Yes, my bug-out bag is packed, Faith said and grimaced. Where's your bug-out bag? Is your bug-out bag packed? What's your inventory? Why did I get the insane parents? We're packing the trailer, Sophia pointed out. When do we go to Biocon? I'm torn, Steve admitted. We can't meet about the sailboat with masks on. On the other hand, any meeting is a danger. Speaking of which, Sophia said, dipping into her bag, hand sanitizer. She rubbed some on her hands, then passed it over. Which is why I have you along, Steve said, smiling. He wiped not only his hands, but the steering wheel. This had better be for real, Faith said, rubbing her hands vigorously. You just want to fight zombies, Sophia said. Which is why I have you along, Steve added with a grin. Derp, Faith said. Of course I want to fight zombies. Who doesn't? Me, Sophia said. Me, Steve said. Yeah, well, there had better be zombies, or I'm shooting somebody, and two guesses who. Oh, wait, they're both right. I read the code, but I'm still not 100% on this. Note that I just threw away a perfectly good job. Stacy Smith was 5'6", with dark blue eyes and dark brown, or occasionally auburn hair. Two children had caused her to chunk a bit, but she still was pretty much the attractive geek girl Tom had met in Melbourne 18 years ago. One who agreed that the world was occasionally a hostile place and did not so much indulge her husband's penchant for preparation as drive it. I knew this day might come, Steve said, shrugging. Tom wouldn't jest about something like this. I'm going to go look for a confirm, Stacy said. Just, Steve said, grimacing. I'll use a proxy, Stacy said, patting him on the arm. I'm not going to go shouting zombie apocalypse to the rooftops. And I'll go take care of packing the trolley. Steve considered most preppers to be short-sighted, at least those portrayed in the media, and even those on the various boards. Having all sorts of preparations in an urban setting was a good way to have them taken away at the first hint of trouble. If the government didn't gather what you had or had produced, then gangs would eventually, and those that moved to distant zones, well, if the end didn't come, 
you had better enjoy the rural life and good luck finding a decent job in the meantime. Prepping, or survivalism, is about Maslow's hierarchies. The first three are ostensibly food, clothing, and shelter. What Maslow left out was security. And in a real, serious, end of civilization as we know it, security was the single greatest concern. So Steve and Stacy's plans were flexible. The house they lived in was subtly fortified. Most of it had to do with living in Virginia, where the threat of an occasional hurricane or severe storm meant having plywood ready to cover the windows was just good sense. The house had been chosen for various real-world factors, jobs, schools, the neighborhood. But it also had fieldstone walls, which meant it was somewhat bullet-resistant. Also hurricane-resistant, which was the point that they had tended to make to casual friends or neighbors. There was a sizable and quite dry basement. There was a generator. ROWPU water purifier and various supplies against both hurricanes and ice storms. Their neighbors were always commenting on how well prepared they were for emergencies. Which was nice until the second or third minor emergency, when you were the only one who noticed that the lights did occasionally go out, and grocery stores tended to run short when there was the slightest news of a possible disaster. Yes, we have spare toilet paper. Incoming comet? Landward Ho. They had some true friends, including a few army paras and special operations Steve had met in Afghanistan and kept in touch with. Together with Tom, the group had bought an old house in the western Virginia countryside. More or less a timeshare, they used it as a weekend or summer getaway, its actual purpose being, well, a getaway. Staffed by six former soldiers and their generally well-prepared families, it was going to be a bit of a tough nut to crack. But there were a few events that called for heading seaward. The first was any sort of biological. Boats were designed to take stores, and modern boats had water purifiers to draw fresh water from the sea. Once they were loaded up, you could stay away from other people for a long time. Longer if you had a sailboat with green recovering power, such as wind generators and recovering propeller generators. A little fishing, plenty of vitamins, and barring running into a bad storm, you were good for months. And missing storms was mostly a matter of being where they didn't go. Assuming the biological was bad enough, afterwards you could probably scavenge with care. Thus, the full hazmat clothing in the stores. Zombies had been generally considered one of those stochastic, low probabilities that were more for fun than serious consideration. A zombie shoot was particularly fun, but because it was the sort of thing that the kids could get into, with some humor, that had been part of the planning as well. If for no other reason, then it gave them a chance to take a prepper cruise to the islands on a sailboat. The kids had enjoyed the time in the abacus and learned the basics of sailing as well as maintaining a boat. Survivalism. Good, clean fun for the whole family. At least if you didn't take it to excess. The cans go on the bottom, Sophia shouted as Steve entered the basement garage. Heavy stuff down and forward. Bite me, Soph, Faith snarled. I wasn't the one who already loaded the toilet paper. Then move it around, Steve said. Good, clean fun. Soph, into the trolley. You load, Faith and I will toss. Yeah, Faith said, grinning maliciously.
Because you're so short, you can fit inside. We shall soon be armed, sister dear, Sophia said sweetly. That assumes you can hit me at the range of sitting next to you, Faith said, staggering over under the weight of three cases of water, which you know I can do at any range you'd care to name, Sophia replied. She's got you there, Steve said. She's a better shot and you know it. Not at combat shooting, Faith argued. She's better when she takes all day to pull the trigger. I'm going to have all day to listen to your bitching, Sophia pointed out. The trailer was a ten by six, bought used and improved and maintained by Stacy. She tended to do the mechanical and electrical bits. In this case, new plywood floor, new bearings, wiring, and a new coat of paint. Hundred dollars used, a bit more in repairs, and it was practically a brand new trailer, which was rapidly filling with gear and supplies. We couldn't load the gen by ourselves, Sophia pointed out. And if we're going to, we'd better soon or it will unbalance the trailer. We're not taking it, Steve said regretfully. The generator wasn't new, but it was in good shape, and with care, which Stacy was obsessive about, would last for years. The boat has one. Spare? Faith asked. Rather take more supplies, Steve said, tossing a case of bottled water into the back of the trailer. The way to avoid loading the heavy on light is to move heavy first. What about ammo? Stacy asked. Ammo, guns, first aid, one case water, one general case mountain house in the car, Steve said. Bug out bags and webbing. Hook in. We're on short time. No, it's bad, Faith said grinning. Da's going D.U. then. Hooking in, Dad, Sophia said, then paused. Dad, are we really, really sure? No, Steve admitted tossing a case of rations into the trailer. Not until we have a confirm, or I can talk to Tom in the open. I don't want all my friends to die, Faith said softly. I don't want either of you to die, Steve said, which is why we're hooking in. And there's a partial confirm, Stacy said, walking down the stairs. There have been three reported incidents on the West Coast. People are putting it down to drugs, but it's zombieistic. The bath salts thing again? Faith asked. That's it? No, Steve said. That's a confirm. Tom's message indicated that it's already out there. Those are infected people, presumably. We'll get a solid confirmation later. I'm hoping that guy makes the meeting tomorrow. Then you'd better get upstairs and call him, Stacy pointed out. He's probably getting ready to close up shop. Boat broker, Steve pointed out. He's connected to his cell. But, yeah. That was the first entry in our ongoing serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Be sure to tune in next week for the next installment. That's it for this week's edition of the Bane Free Radio Hour. Thanks again to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And thanks to Matthew Johnson, Derek Kunskin, David D. Levine, Linda Nagata, and Michael Z. Williamson for talking with us today. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of fantasy and science fiction, and keep reaching for the stars.